Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. You guys look beautiful. Well done. Uh, I'm swimming in a sea of pastels all morning. It's been great. Uh, Three weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. Some of you are familiar with that. Uh, In 2018, it was the the second most popular podcast in the world. And he had a guest on his his podcast, uh, Ben Shapiro. A lot of you guys know Ben Shapiro. And they were having an interaction, and somehow, somehow Jesus of Nazareth came up in conversation. Now, uh, Ben Shapiro is a Jewish guy, and Joe Rogan is not a follower of Jesus, so I found this really interesting as they started to dialogue about this. Here's how the conversation went. Rogan says, he was just a prophet, right? Shapiro responds, no, 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 we don't even believe he was a prophet. Rogan says, what do you think he was? What do you guys think he was? Shapiro says, what do I think he was historically? I think he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble, just like a lot of other Jews at that time who were crucified for trying to lead revolts against the Romans and got killed for their trouble. Rogan said, so he became legend and a story, and it became a bigger and bigger deal as time went on. Shapiro, yeah, he he had a group of followers, and then that gradually grew, and then Rogan interrupts, do you think he was resurrected? Shapiro, no, no, that's not a Jewish belief. Rogan, okay, I just wanted to check. And then he laughs and he says, so you're not into zombies? Shapiro says, no, 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 no. And then the conversation continues. Two highly educated, really brilliant, culturally savvy people, the resurrection comes up, that's crazy. Like, honestly, that's crazy, right? Last Friday, I was getting uh, my hair cut and I was paying entirely too much to get my hair cut and I was hanging out with my barber, and she, very genuinely, she's a friend of mine, I've been going to her for years, she, she asked me, she said, do you, do you really believe? Somehow, you know, the resurrection came up, probably because I'm a pastor, and I was driving the conversation that way. And uh, so, so it came up, and she said, do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Almost like this look of, like, I know that you're somewhat of a normal, sane person, but I don't really have a category for the fact that you might believe that this really happened. Here's what's bizarre. Maybe you can relate to some of those people. I I don't know your story. Maybe you're here and uh, you're very intentionally not a follower of Jesus because you have doubts and skepticism about things like this, the resurrection, for example. Or maybe you consider yourself someone who believes in God, maybe, but you don't really know how that matters for your life. Or maybe you're full-on someone who follows Jesus. And it doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum. The reality is that throughout today... A little over 2 billion people scattered all over across our world are gathering together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And here's the claim that Christians make. Not just that it happened, but we actually consider it profoundly good news for all people. Why is that? I mean, this raises all kinds of questions, and I want to look at three of those with you today. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 3. Here's what it says. Paul the Apostle, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The first question that I want to wrestle with is this. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Like, did it really happen? I mean, I mean, what do we make of this claim that Jesus died, but then He came back from the dead? Uh, well, the secular claim is no, he did not rise from the dead. And, and there's all these theories that are put forward as to uh, why we might explain away the empty tomb. So let me just kind of distill them down and give you the, the most popular theories that, that people are, who, who don't believe in the resurrection are putting forward. Here, here's the first one. It's called the swoon theory. The swoon theory basically says that Jesus on the cross, he didn't die. He nearly died, but he didn't. He swooned. He passed out and he was placed in a grave and then he was able to somehow make it out of the grave because he wasn't actually dead. So a couple days later, he kind of woke up from his coma and he made it out of the tomb and then he appeared to his disciples and they believed that it was a resurrection. The problem with that claim is that Jesus was executed by, the, by a professional Roman executioner uh, and by this point in history, the Romans had really perfected the art of crucifixion. They'd crucified hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, at one point, 6,000 men in one day they crucified uh, that led a revolt against the Roman army. So they had perfected the art of crucifixion. And in fact, there was a Roman law that said that if you botched an execution, if you failed to execute someone uh, via crucifixion, then you yourself would be executed. You would be put to death. Uh, and we have zero uh, people throughout history. There, there's not one story that you can find of anybody who ever survived a crucifixion. And then prior to this, uh, even before Jesus made it to the cross, he was scourged. If you don't know much about scourging, scourging was a torture mechanism that the Romans would do. Uh, they would take a whip with these uh, kind of these uh, legs attached to it, these uh, leather whips at the end, and they would attach pieces of bone, glass, uh, metal balls that they would attach to that, and they would whip the victim prior to crucifixion. And this was to bring you near death but not kill you, uh, so as to really maximize the torture. And here's kind of the modern equivalent. Some, some scholars suggest that a modern equivalent of scourging is like getting shot in the back at point blank with a shotgun. So imagine, just for a second, like Jesus, he's been scourged, and then he goes to the cross, and then he's, he's executed on the cross in, in front of Roman soldiers, professional executioners. He's then wrapped in between 75 and 100 pounds of spices and burial linens. He's wrapped tightly. He's placed inside of a rock tomb with a rock sealed over the mouth of it. So this theory would have us believe that somehow Jesus miraculously survived all of that. And then he managed to wake up and unwrap himself, move the rock out of the way, slip past the Roman guards that were guarding outside, walk several miles to where his disciples were at, and then just kind of, ta-da, I'm okay. I really am alive and, and I've risen from the dead. And and there's just not any possibility that that could have happened. All right, so that's the swoon theory. The second theory that's often put forward is the stolen body theory. Uh, the, the reality is that there was an empty tomb, and so how do you explain it? Well, a lot of people say it was, his body was stolen. Somebody came in and they, they took his body 
away. The problems with this theory is that, again, there were Roman soldiers guarding the outside of the tomb 24-7 because they did not want his disciples to come and remove his body. So that was an intentional effort to keep that from happening. The other, the other problem with this theory is that there were countless people that not all were even connected together that claimed to have seen Jesus alive in the 40-day period between his death and his, his ascension into heaven. Uh, so, so many people, at one point even 500 people, claimed to see Jesus alive. And, and, and then finally, you have very few people throughout history that are willing to fabricate a lie, seeming with no benefit to them whatsoever, not making any money, not selling any books doing so. And instead of getting any benefits for fabricating this lie, they're in fact getting their life put on the line, most of them getting executed for this claim. If you take the the 12 disciples, one of them, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he committed suicide shortly after the death of Jesus. Then you have the other 11. 10 out of the 11 all were murdered for this very claim that Jesus is alive, that he really, in fact, rose from the dead. Like, yeah, you can kill us, you can put us to death, but we're telling you, we saw him alive. And and even for 60 plus years, they weren't willing to recant. And then finally, you even have John, the last of the disciples who, who wasn't murdered, but was, they tried to execute him, they tried boiling him to death on three separate occasions. They eventually put him on an island called Patmos, which is like uh, kind of a prison island. And, and then he stayed there till he was in his upper 90s and never, ever, ever one time recanted or denied that he had seen the risen Jesus. So it just doesn't make sense, the stolen body theory. And then, and then um, the third theory that's often put forward is called the ancient worldview theory. And the idea here is that, well, you know, that was then and this is now. I mean, let's be honest, like we have science and technology, we understand the world in a way that ancient people didn't, they were just more gullible, they believed in fairies and in ghosts and in gods, and so of course they would believe in the resurrection. We are more mature and we actually understand things better now. Uh, C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery, right? The idea that we're smarter somehow because we live in 2019, The problem with this theory is that, again, in the first century, and even today, Jewish people did not and do not have a category for an individual resurrection from the dead in the middle of history. Some Jews believe in a resurrection at the end of history for all people, but most Jewish people didn't, you know, honestly, no Jewish people believed in an individual resurrection in the middle of history. The other problem with this theory is that no Greek or Roman had a category for resurrection physically. No one believed in bodily resurrection. If you were a Greek or a Roman, they believed that when you died, your body went into the ground and your soul was kind of brought in together into the all soul. You know, it reunited with all of the souls together and you lost any sort of consciousness in yourself. And so this is a a claim that was as shocking to them then as uh, as it is to us today. So they wouldn't even have thought to believe this because it wasn't even in their worldview at the time. And honestly, can we, can we just be honest with each other, for example, for all of our te- technological advances and scientific improvements that we have today, we've invented the iPhone, and what do we use to do with it? We send each other poop emojis with a face on it, right? So like, that's what we're doing with our technology. Are we really smarter than they were then? So the secular claim to the resurrection is, no, it didn't happen. The Christian claim is, yes, it did happen. Here's a few reasons why. One is the empty tomb. This is the the greatest 
evidence that we have. How do you explain the fact that the tomb is empty? It's interesting, in the first century, you can find over 66 different burial sites of people that were uh, really well-known that later those burial sites became shrines. People would travel and visit, and the tomb of Jesus was never enshrined. Why? Because there's nothing to see there. His body isn't there. There's no point to visit it because he's alive. The empty tomb, you have to explain that somehow. Another reason we believe in the resurrection is because Jesus' own family worshipped him as God. His Jewish family, which would have been heresy at the max degree, worshipped Jesus as God. His mother and his brothers. Now, let me just point something out. Some of you are like, yeah, but you don't know my mom, and she really likes me, and she might actually worship me as God, right? Well, two things. One, that's really weird, uh, but, you know, that's okay. And then two... Uh, Even if your mom would worship you as God, you could never, ever, ever get your brothers and your sisters to worship you as God, right? If you have siblings, you know, like, that's never going to happen. Yet Jesus' brother, James, claimed to have seen him alive, worshipped him as God, and ended up dying for that claim. The other reason we believe in the resurrection is because you have countless eyewitnesses, over 500 people at once. Even in the section of scripture that we just read together, the Apostle Paul's like, oh yeah, most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, just go ask them. I mean, most of them are right. Some have died, but most are still alive. Go talk to them. So many people saw this with their own eyes. Another reason why we believe this claim is because of the radical transformation of the disciples. How do you explain Peter uh, becoming this you know, fearful, coward, cowardice person where he denies even knowing Jesus three times for fear of getting executed or thrown in jail? to after the resurrection being so filled with boldness that later in life he ends up dying by crucifixion himself, hanging upside down, saying, I won't recant, Jesus is alive. Radical transformation of this small bunch of disciples, and they become these bold, bold people that believe this claim to be true. You can't explain it outside of the resurrection. And then the final reason we would give is just the unexplainable growth of the early church. It's amazing to me by 300 A.D., that you have low estimates inside of the Roman Empire between 7 and 10 million people believed that Jesus was alive. 7 to 10 million people. Those are low estimates. So 120 people in an upper room to 300 years later, before Christianity was even legalized, between 7 and 10 million people considered Jesus alive. How do you explain the radical, rapid growth of the early church apart from this claim? Uh, Let me just put it in modern-day equivalents. So for those of you, like, NBA fans out there, uh, this would be like waking up next week, and everybody in Oklahoma is wearing Kevin Durant T-shirts. And there's, like, Kevin Durant posters on our city, and people are on Twitter talking about how great Kevin Durant is. And you would wake up and be like, what has happened to my city? Because he's not a guy that we like. And why is everyone talking about him? Something must have happened. Well, that's what happened with the resurrection of Jesus. You have a Jewish homeless man who by 300 years later, 10 million people, he's Lord, he's alive. Something must have happened. So the short of it is this, that we don't believe that the secular claim is sufficient to really explain the evidence. How do you explain the empty tomb? And we do believe that the sheer weight of evidence points to this reality that Jesus rose from the dead. It really happens. When my barber asked me, do you you really believe that Jesus was alive? My response was, yeah, I do. I really, really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that leads to the next question, which is pretty obvious. Okay, if I believe that, why does that even matter? 
right? Why does it even matter? In fact, some of you are here and you do believe the resurrection. You just don't really think much about Jesus or Christianity. It doesn't really have any like, meaningful relation to your day-to-day life. So you're here, but you're like, yeah, why does, why does all of that matter in the first place? Well, l- let me explain it like this. Being human is hard, isn't it? Like, can we just agree that being a human on planet Earth can be difficult? I mean, you've got relationships that are complicated and difficult to navigate. Parenting is super confusing and hard to figure out. You've got taxes that you have to pay, which is, like, really lame. We just did that. That's never fun. Like, there's all these problems. But you know the biggest problem with being a human is that you and I are going to die. You and I are going to breathe our last, and we are going to die. And this is something that we don't like to talk about or think about uh, very often. We, we tend to try to bat this away and, and, and avoid death at all costs. But it's a haunting thing that if you'll let it, anytime you go to a funeral, anytime someone close to you dies, you have the spark inside of you deep down where you go, is this really all there is? What's after this? One author said, said it this way. He said, is death the end or is there something more? This is the ultimate question. It has been the defining issue for entire cultures from the ancient Egyptians to the present. And in truth, there is no more important question that any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to a hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who has recently lost a child. You will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. And so as a result, we have this haunting feeling deep down, is there more to this life? Is there something beyond this life? What's out there after this? Is it literally just like working a job and accumulating stuff and and enjoying sexual pleasure and and, and, and eating out and, and going on a vacation a couple times a year and doing some fun stuff and then we die? I mean, is that really it? And what happens is as these questions rise to the top, we play existential whack-a-mole. So it's like, what's after this? And they're like, latte, you know, from a coffee shop, just to make myself feel better. You know, and then a question arises, and we're like, vacation. You know, and then another deep question arises, and we're like, ah, just pursue a raise, and career, and work really hard, and accumulate, and get stuff. And here's what's fascinating to me, that as a culture, we live in almost paradise, don't we? I mean, our world in many ways, even though it doesn't feel like this, the stats will tell you that you are living in one of the safest times in history. It's incredibly safe and secure. And, and, and here's what's so crazy. We have everything we could ever want at our fingertips. I mean, literally, like the only thing holding us back from the life that we want is money. So if you work hard enough and make much of your, of your job and your career, then, then you can accumulate and you can get the new toys and the new hobbies. And, and if you can hone your body, then you can get the sexual partner and you can do the stuff. And, 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 and we're just stuffing and filling and acquiring and grabbing. And we have established for ourselves a kingdom. But here's the scary thing. There is no king. And so there is no meaning. And death comes in as the great wrecking ball to destroy all of this. And so it leaves us, if we're honest with ourselves, it leaves us with this haunting feeling of sadness that you and I do not know how to process and we don't know what to do about it. One of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, uh, wasn't a follower of Jesus and was ridden with this type of sadness. He put words to it in a way that I think is helpful and eventually ended up taking his own life because he couldn't handle the reality is he couldn't handle the reality, so he took his own life. But listen to these words that he, he said. 
It's something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. The sadness that I was going through was a real America type of sadness. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. Maybe that puts words to what you're experiencing. And in biblical language, what the Bible would say is that you are someone who is lost. Now, think of having a child who is lost. Like, you're not angry at your child. You're going to do anything you can to get your child back. And the story of Christianity is that God is a good father who is literally willing to do anything it takes to find his lost children. And it's the story of Jesus coming, uh, not to bring death and condemnation, but to address death in its face. And Jesus actually goes to the cross, and Jesus dies so that death could one day die. And then we know that he did this because he rose again from the dead, and he offers life to anybody who wants this type of life. Jesus came to bring life where we have death. And if you will open up your eyes, and if you will be honest with yourself, death is all around you. And this haunting level of, is there more? It's in you. And the answer from the resurrection, from the empty tomb, is yes, there is more. Jesus is alive. He came so that you might have life. And this leads to the third thing. What does this mean for me? What does all of this mean for me? Well, here's what I know, living in Oklahoma, that we've become really good at kind of saying, here's the religious people, and here's the irreligious people, and if you don't behave like this, then God wants nothing to do with you. The only problem with that is the Bible, right? And everything that Jesus stood for, because here's the reality. If you're sitting here thinking to yourself, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Like, you don't know my story. You don't know what I do in my free time. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know how I live. You don't know these black pages in my story that literally no one else knows about. Here's the reality. The, 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 the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus is not good advice to you. It's good news to you. News is received. Advice is something that it's like, here, do this now. Like, here's good advice. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do, right? That's advice. I'm not even sure if that's good advice. That's just advice, you know? Like, take it or leave it. That's advice. Resurrection is not, here's some advice for you, get your life in order and try really hard so that you can earn God's love. Resurrection is, God came for all people. And if you're sinful, and if you're broken, and if you feel lost, then this is really good news for you, and all you do with news is receive it. You just receive the reality that Jesus came to bring you life. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died... It's a historical reality. Why? For our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. Historical fact with a spiritual significance. He died. Why? For our sins. So when Jesus died, he actually took this shame that we carry, this sin that we have, this brokenness inside of us. He took it and he put it on himself. And this this divine transaction took place where Jesus died for us as sinners and, and he rose again so that those of us who are sinful could be offered life and forgiveness and hope. 
Look at how he goes on to say it in verse 21. The Apostle Paul, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The story, the story of the Bible, it's a story that starts with a man in a garden, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. And he reaches out and he says, Not your will, God, but mine be done. Not your will, but mine be done. I'm going to run my life the way I want to run it. And he reaches out and he decides to sin and live in his own wisdom and live in his own way. And his decision to say, not my will, or not your will, God, but my will be done, his decision to say that brought about death and dysfunction and destruction into our world. But the story ends with another man in another garden, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prays these words, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to a cross willingly. And on the cross, Jesus, instead of bringing death, he dies so that death could die. And he rises from the dead so that all who were in death could have life. This is why this is good news. Because it's not a message for the good people. It's not a message for the ones that have it all together. It's not a message for the ones that think that they can earn their way up to heaven. That look at their life and feel like they've got more good than bad. This is a message for the hopeless. This is a message for the broken. This is a message for the sinful. Jesus came not so that righteous people could be in a righteous club called the church. He came so that unrighteous people could be brought out of death into life. It's interesting that Jesus spent 40 years, or I'm sorry, 40 days rather, from the time that he died and rose again till the time that he ascended into heaven. He spent 40 days appearing to people. Now, what would you have done if you had 40 days left on earth and you were Jesus? I don't know about you, but I would have gone to Caesar and be like, ta-da, I'm here. Get off my chair. I am now in control, and you work for me. Or I would have gone to Pontius Pilate. Like, hey, you remember that conversation where I told you that you didn't have authority, and I was Jesus, and I'm really God, and my kingdom, and all of that? Yeah, well, I wasn't lying to you, so move out of the way. You know, I would have gone to the Roman army or whatever. I would have gone to the, the Jewish high priest that, that wrongfully condemned, and you know, all these... Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Do you know what Jesus decides to do during the 40-day period? The very first person that he wants to see is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Before Mary met Jesus, Mary had seven demons. She was the type of person that if you were on the street driving by, you would look at her and go, that's a crazy person. Jesus wants to appear to her and say, look, Mary, I'm alive. Jesus then comes to people like Peter a few days after this, Peter had denied Jesus three times. He had seen Jesus once, but they hadn't talked about the whole denial thing. So he's like, yeah, he probably doesn't want anything to do with me anyway. And he literally looked at me in the face when I denied him. And so Peter, he gets his buddies and he's like, I'm just going to go back to my old way of life. I'm going to go fishing again. And for Peter to go fishing is to say, I'm going back to my old ways. Do you know what Jesus decides to do? He goes to the same shore where he originally called Peter Peter's there again. He's trying to fish. It's not working out. They're not catching anything. And Jesus calls out to him. And then Peter, he forgives Peter. He redeems Peter. He restores Peter. Peter's floored with the the redeeming love of God. And then Jesus shows up to guys like Thomas, doubting Thomas. You always feel bad for doubting Thomas, don't you? It's like he did one thing wrong, and now it's like, you're doubting Thomas, you know? Forever and always, you're doubting Thomas. And he's like, guys, there's one time, all right? But Jesus shows up, and he wasn't there, and And he's like, yeah, I I just don't believe that happened. 
And his friend's like, no, really, like, he came and we saw him. And, and Thomas is like, no, I, just, I don't believe it. I, I'm not going to believe it until I see him. Guess what Jesus decides to do? He doesn't shame Thomas. He doesn't push Thomas away. He loves doubters. So he comes to doubters and he showed up and he said, Thomas, it really is me. I want you to believe it really is me. And then finally, Jesus shows up to guys like Paul, who prior to meeting Jesus, Paul the apostle was Saul the terrorizer. He literally hated Christianity. He tried to kill the church and destroy Christians. He, was, he murdered one guy and he had thrown many men and women in prison. Jesus is like, perfect, just the guy I want to love, shows up and just radically changes Paul from the inside out. The, the letter that we're writing is from the guy who tried to kill Christians. The letter that we're reading today came from the guy that tried to kill Christians because Jesus loves the sinful. I love this quote from Philip Yancey. He says, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. Much to their surprise, he honored Instead, people who have little value in the visible world, the poor and meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and the thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes, the prodigal, not the tax collector. I'm sorry, the prodigal, uh, not the responsible son, the good Samaritan, not the good Jew, Lazarus, not the rich man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon expressed it, his glory was that he laid aside his glory. And the glory of the church is that when she lays aside her respectability and dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. If you want to know what Easter is, Easter is a gathering together of the outcasts. If that feels like you today, then Jesus has a radical welcome for you. He doesn't want to shame you. He doesn't want to condemn you. He came so that your death would die, so that your sin would be put away, so that you could literally have a new identity and a new start, so that you could be forgiven and brought in to the family of God. If you're here and you're going, yeah, but but there's got to be some like qualification. Like there's got to be, you know, it can't just be that easy. No, you're right. There are some qualifications. Let me give you three of them. If you want to be loved and welcomed by Jesus, here are three qualifications. Number one, you must be weak. Number two, you must be ungodly. And number three, you must be sinful. And if you can meet those qualifications, you're exactly the type of person that Jesus came to save. You're exactly the type of people that he associates with. He's calling you. He's welcoming you. He's ready and willing to give you a new identity. If you're too righteous for this, if you don't need Jesus, he's not inviting you. You have to lay down your righteousness first. But if you're here and you're at the end of your rope and you're broken and you're sinful and you are in need of someone from the outside to rescue you, Easter is good news because Jesus is alive. He died so that death would breathe its last breath. He, He came so that you could have life. That's what this is all about.